And we'll begin with a 15-minute meditation. So find your posture. Take a few moments or the time that you need to settle into the posture and to bring the awareness into the body. So we'll take some time to feel the awareness in the body and particularly to open to the materiality of the body. So feeling the contact of the body with the seat or with the ground. We can get a sense of the form of the body, of the weight of the body. Of the solidity, seeming solidity of the body. Similarly, if we feel the contact of the hands where they rest on another part of the body, in that contact, feeling the materiality, the weight, the substance, the form of the body. this meditation that I'd like to offer, we can reflect on where this materiality, where this substance, the form, the weight, the shape of the body, what is it made of? So the limbs of the body, the different body parts, 
And then the different components like the muscles and the tissue and the bones. They all make the form of this body. They all co-create the form of this body. And what are they made of? The bones, the muscle, the tissue, the flesh, the hair, the nails of this body, what are they made of? So we can open to, to see, to reflect, to ponder. And this body is created from the nourishment we give it. the food that we eat. is processed and becomes the building block for the cells in our body. And that food that we eat, that we consume, is itself the body of other creatures, plants, animals, and so the substance and form of the body continuously being created, being formed. From what was once outside this body. And in the same way, this substance, this form of the body is constantly leaving the body. We lose hair. We cut our nails. Layers of skin regularly fall off this body. We use the toilet what was inside us is suddenly outside the body. 
So can we reflect and see that this body is a process, is changing, and that substance and form are flowing into the body and out of the body, like a river, like a river of materiality. Can we take a few moments to feel that river flowing through? Materiality coming into the body, we can feel it being digested right now. Materiality flowing out of the body to become nourishment for other life forms come back to the earth. What can this mean for our sense of solidity and permanence of the body? can this mean for our sense of ownership of the body? Can we sit here feeling that flow of life moving through? Not ours. Not who we are. We can also feel it As we breathe, every breath we inhale, oxygen and air from our surroundings, every breath we exhale, CO2 into our surroundings. As we breathe in that that we want, that which the body needs, spreads through the body and is absorbed. That which the body does not need is released out again. We breathe in, we breathe in the oxygen released by plants. As we breathe out, we breathe out carbon dioxide that will nourish plant life. 
Right now, as we breathe, we're sharing breath with each other, with the life forms around us, and with life forms that are very distant in time and space. And we feel that flow of life moving through in a breath. Not ours. Not who we are. A constant flow of breath, of air, of materiality and substance. Some of the oxygen we breathe is thousands of years old. The trees that released it are dead. And yet, here they are, supporting the life that is being lived in this body, in this moment. So in your own way and time, it's opening to feel that flow of life that is moving through this body as it sits here, as it breathes.
I wanted to check if um, anyone found that meditation interesting in some way. And if you want to say anything about it, (laughs) what was interesting if it was? No pressure, only if you want. Um, Yeah, I found it interesting just to ponder on those things, actually, being permanent, like the the changing nature of the body. Mm. Having usually thought about it, if I think about it at all, just being solid. Anything else? I suppose for me, it's what you said is is like I kind of know it Mm. ever since I was at school, and yet, um, and it's really good that you've reminded me of it. Mm. And it's like this thing that I call Robin, whatever it is, is such a miracle. And yet I managed to put that out of my head for Mm. nearly all my life. Mm. Mm. So a sense of the miraculousness. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And for Linda, a sense of the kind of, uh, yeah, of just that that flow of, of life. And not, yeah, in both cases, not, it's like waking up to something that we already know, but we're not knowing in the kind of moment-to-moment unfolding of our experience. Yeah. Michal, you had something before? I wasn't sure if you... Um, you started by um, uh, suggesting to pay attention to the materiality of the body. And uh, in a way, you, you would think... What else is there? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's material. Mm. But then uh, the experience shows different. Mm-hmm. So that's mm. interesting. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about the different? The difference? Yeah. Like what, what, what's the different that the experience shows? I guess it's, um, it's about the concepts we have mm. about mm. something. Mm. So I think it was, it was, I just want to pull out from, from what, what the three of you have said, and if anyone else wants to say something, there's still space, but just that there's, there's a sense of kind of, a, yeah, of seeing something differently, and then there's a sense of some kind of lightness or um, opening of the space with that. I know I've been using space, <laughs> that word a lot, and I'll probably use it more with that, but I just want to pull that out like uh, things are not yeah we take things to be a certain way and yet when we look from a, 
a different angle. We look in a um, through a different lens. They, they're different. There's something light in that. Did anyone else want to say anything? No pressure, but yes. Maria. very simple and very profound at the same time and yeah i think it can if if we if we really take on this reflection more regularly it can it can make going to the toilet a completely different experience <laughs> and and we can actually really feel that you know this is just one way that it can shift things but just feel like ah the the participation you know which is one of the ways that we can translate the word dana, which we usually translate as generosity, but the participation in, in, in the flow of life, just by doing what our body needs to do. Yeah, it can really be transformative. Yeah, as I say, to see that these cells are now here and then they're not here anymore and they're somewhere else. Um, so yeah, we can, we can go into this quite a lot and it can have you know just a, a simple um well just a huh there was more here yes um so i was just going to say yeah, yeah um I, I occasionally just pick up things that kind of go in my head and mm. the, the idea that um you know we're breathing oxygen which is thousands of years old mm. never occurred to me before mm. and it's rather lovely yeah and um uh, it reminded me of uh, something I picked up from Sharon Salzberg, I think, from a talk, uh, which also blew my mind, and that's that <clears throat> every atom in our body is 14 and a half billion years old, because mm. it was all created at the Big Bang mm. 14 and a half billion years ago. Mm. I thought, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I feel so old. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The air, the water, the, what is called the earth element, which I was just referring to as materiality, and, uh, and the fire, the heat, um, and the space. Yeah. So, yeah, with all of these, yeah, that sense of participation and that sense of, of the flow. And, um, yeah, I kind of, I'm, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting um, swept into, into this talk with you, but... Um, you know, also just reflecting on what, how, how does this, how can this, having this kind of contemplation on a more regular basis, how does that, um, how can that inform our relationship to other, other life forms, you know, or also what we consider um, non-life, you know, the, the, the stones and the, and the soil, they're also made from the same substance that we are, you know, it's also not different. 
Um, so how does that, you know, what does that open up? It's, it's, it's a big question to just be with. Um, and and if, if you like that, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a classical traditional meditation um, from the Buddha Dharma, not, not taught a lot again in the West, but, um, you know, you can, it's something we can just bring in as a reflection. sense of aliveness so part of what I think we, we we touched on you know and thank you for for everything you've shared because um, yeah that's kind of what I was I was hoping for this kind of juice to come from 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 all of you um, is that when we meditate yeah when we practice um, it's not just about uh, a kind of uh, neutral observation of experience that is somehow separate to us. Yeah, it's not just about you know. I think Nathan mentioned this. You know, sometimes we the, the language that's used is being with things as they are, seeing things as they are, which kind of then gives a sense of there is something that is there. Yeah. And there's something that is here that's seeing that as that is. And yet, the meaning of um, the word in Pali Bhavana, which is usually translated as as meditation, the the, the actual more precise translation is cultivation. So it's something that is really um, involved, we can say. It's got quite a it's got a, a level of activity to it, responsiveness to it. And it can be worthwhile reflecting on, you know, what is it that we are cultivating if what we're doing is bhavana, cultivation? What is it that we're cultivating? What is it that we're cultivating? So one way of responding to that question of what is it that we're cultivating is that we're cultivating ways of looking at experience that free, that free us. Yeah. And this is partly why I just did this meditation now. Yeah. Because we can look at our experience in different ways. Yeah. And the way we look at our experience affects what we experience or what we perceive. Yeah. So we can look at the body, you know, as we normally do, as we usually do. And then we can look at the body in a different way, like we just did. And that changes the experience. Yeah, we see something different. So we can look at our experience, at this human experience, at this human being, um, in ways that open up perspective. And that kind of invite us to see things in fresh ways or in the non-habitual ways that we usually see things. So again, just as we've been saying, we usually see the body as solid, as permanent, as ours. You know, we can just, 10 minutes of playing around, yeah, with, with minds that are pretty still already, you know, 
You might not feel like they are, but that's why that meditation works. <laughs> because your minds are pretty, pretty calm and gathered already. Yeah? So just 10 minutes and we can see it differently. So the experience changes when we change the way of looking. Or we can experience different things when we change the way of looking. You know, just like we did now, or just like we did with the um, Anicca practice today, yeah. or with the Vedana. And it's not just, you know, it's, it's a fun game to play, but it's not just about playing a game. Yeah. It's about um, the cultivation of wisdom. Yeah. It's about the cultivation of wisdom. So, um, you know doing these kind of practices like we just did that create this, uh, this shift in the feeling of, of solidity or the amount of space that's there or, the, or, or how much we acknowledge our, connect, acknowledge our connection to, to, to what's around us, our non-separation. <coughs> and this comes, this can come with a sense of well-being, you know, the, Quite a few people were touching on that, yeah. There's a sense of enhanced well-being. Somehow changing that view from, you know, this, this habitual view of body or self to um, something more alive, like Maria was saying. Yeah, and a sense of wonder. Forget the wonder, <laughs> the miracle that this is. And that brings well-being. It brings well-being. A very, very deep kind of well-being. So another way of saying this, um, speaking about what it is that we're cultivating, is that we're cultivating freedom, cultivating liberation, cultivating our wakefulness. And particularly in this, in the Buddha Dharma, we're cultivating wakefulness, we're cultivating um, freedom through non-clinging, through understanding the relationship uh, between dukkha and clinging. So, I'll just spend a tiny little bit of time with clinging <laughs> and then move on. Um, we'll be talking more about it over the days, I think. But um, just to refer back to the talk two days ago when I, I talked a little bit about that process, that building up process that leads to dukkha um, in relation to Vedana. So you remember there was contact and then there was Vedana. And clinging and craving follow Vedana. Yeah. And uh, we, we often use them together. We don't, even though they're two distinct things, but they're so closely linked that it's more simple to just use them together clinging and, and craving. And another, a very useful way of, of speaking about them is, is the push-pull, yeah, the way we're um, you know, pushing away things or trying to hold on to them. Yeah, that's the clinging and craving. Sometimes always, also the word grasping is used, just to add another one there. Yeah, it's that movement yeah, towards something or away from something, yeah, which is really, really... Um, you know, as we become more sensitive, we can really feel it on more and more subtle levels, how it arises. And in the teachings of, of the Buddha, 
this is the, the, you know, one of the primary building blocks, or the primary building block in creating suffering. And so the way out of suffering, transformation of dukkha, is non-clinging, non-craving. Yeah, the release of that. So I just want to make sure that, that this is, is this clear? Because it's quite complex um, and simple, but complex <laughs> and complex. Yeah. And uh, yeah, don't, don't be shy if, if you want me to say it again or in a different way. Say it again. Yeah. Yeah. So what we spoke about a couple of days ago is we have the contact. So say, um, I'll use the same example that I used, um, that I used a couple of days ago just to, to, to keep things simple. So we're sitting here in the hall and it feels like time has slowed down and the bell isn't ringing. Yeah. So there's a restlessness in the being, which is the contact. Yeah, that's the, that's the, and that restlessness has an unpleasant Vedana. And the unpleasant Vedana will build up into clinging and craving, which will be that sense of, um, I really need the bell to ring now. Yeah, that. So it's not the initial restlessness, it's, yeah, it's like, okay. And that is where the suffering is. Most of the dukkha is in that. Yeah, it's in that, I need it to happen right now. Yeah, I need the bell to ring right now. Does that make sense now? Yeah. Okay. Good. Got to love examples. So the dukkha is in that push-pull, and that push-pull is what we've been calling, to a great degree, the relationship to experience, yeah, how we're relating to experience. And the relief of dukkha, the transformation of the dukkha, is in the dissolving or the subsiding of this clinging and craving of this push-pull, yeah, of this reaching out for something or um, pushing something away, which comes with a contraction. Yeah, let's not forget the contraction. So you can see it, I think, when I do it with the body. Yeah, the, cling- the craving, the grasping, the, the clinging, it's like that or like that. Yeah, and we can see the contraction in that, right? Can you see it in my body when I do it? <laughs> yeah, the contraction in the body, in the, in the awareness, in the heart, in the mind. Narrows down. Yeah. Compacts. So what supports this freedom, this freedom through non-clinging, or another way of saying that, the easing of contraction? What supports that in our experience? I'm really tempted to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> You came up with such wonderful stuff before. So what supports non-clinging? What supports the easing of contraction? So things that we've been playing with here, metta, for example, yeah, supports that easing of contraction, right? What does metta do? It opens up the space, yeah, relaxes, yeah, grounds. Uh, the wisdom views that Nathan was mentioning yesterday. Yeah, they're, they're just looking at things through that lens of inconstancy. Yeah, things are changing. Or looking at experience through the lens of, you know, I'm looking, f- I'm, I'm trying to get lasting satisfaction from something that is changing. 
and conditioned, yeah, unsatisfactoriness. Yeah. Or the wisdom view of, um, you know, this is of not self. Yeah, this is uh, not separate. Yeah, not inherently separate, not independent. It is dependent, whatever the is, is. This is, <laughs> the I, the self, or something else. Is dependent on other things. It's not separate. So all of these, you know, if we bring in metta, if we bring in these wisdom views, if we generate more calmness, yeah, or spaciousness or openness in the being, all of these support the opposite of clinging and craving, yeah, the non-clinging, the easing of contraction. And we can, we can refer to them as um, wholesome ways of looking at experience, yeah. Wholesome ways of looking. So, you know, we can refer to metta not as a state, but as a way of looking, as a way of relating to experience, as something uh, which is really alive, yeah, which is really um, applicable that we can bring in. So they're all wholesome ways of looking, um, and we cultivate them. Yeah, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing through our practice. We cultivate them. And remembering cultivation is an agricultural world, what, what, sorry, word. You know, so it means um, creating the conditions. Yeah? Creating the conditions, plowing the land. Yeah? Making sure there's enough water, enough sun, enough nourishment. So we're cultivating these wholesome ways of looking so that they arise naturally more often. Yeah? So they become more of our um, default settings. Yeah? What we default to. Yeah? Whatever we do a lot, we'll default to, become a habit. So one, one reason, one, one uh, fruit of cultivation is that becomes more habitual. The wholesome becomes more habitual. But we also cultivate these ways of looking, and as a result of that cultivation, they become something that we can apply intentionally, yeah? so that we can shift um, the way we perceive an unfolding experience. So we can intentionally apply, just like you've been doing today within Nietzsche practice. Yeah? That's what we've been doing. Intentionally looking at things as impermanent. And as we learn these skills, or well, that's what we've been doing with the metta practice. You can probably tell how much I love metta. I keep using it as an example. <laughs> but you can also, that's what we're doing with the metta practice, so that we can intentionally bring that in. You know, maybe we're having a hard day, or um, something really irritating has happened. And we can intentionally say, ah, what would be a way of looking at this through the meta lens, the meta way of looking? How can I put the meta glasses on? Yeah. What would that mean? What would happen? You know, we can really do that. And I'm saying that not just as theory. You know, it's really um, 
yeah, something that I really love to do. Yeah, something that I really love to do and find really, really useful. So there's a beautiful um, quote from Ajahn Chah, who's a great meditation master in the in the Thai forest tradition. Probably one of his fam- most famous quotes. When he would encourage his students to see that a glass, yeah, a glass that they were using is already broken. Yeah, the glass, you know, like a glass that you drink water from, the glass is already broken. What's your response to that? You ever broken a glass? <laughs> or some other glass container? How did it feel? You're allowed to tell me. <laughs> What's the response usually? Annoyance. Annoyance. Mm. How stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the same result. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. In, in, yeah. In, well, yeah. In, yeah, in the Jewish tradition, it's like a sign of good luck. Um, but still, you say it, but the, the feeling isn't really that strong. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think, you know, sometimes I, I was kind of wondering why he gives this example, but it's such a good example because, you know, I, I can think of times when I've very recently in the last year, I've broken quite a few glass things, and every time it's such a big deal. You know, it's like, I know. How stupid, you know. How did I do that? And now there's such a mess to clean, you know. It's become such a drama, you know, it becomes such a drama. And so what, you know, what Ajahn Chah was saying with this teaching is saying, if we already see that the glass is broken, if we already see that the, the glass is broken, it's impermanent, yeah? If we already see that it's broken... How does that affect our relationship to it while it's still whole? (laughs) And how does it affect our relationship to it when it breaks? What do you think? I think you feel more relaxed towards it. Mm. And when it breaks, well, I knew it was going to break. (laughs) Mm. Anything else? It's the same relationship when it's horrible when it's broken. It's the same. Mm. And how does that feel? Like to, to kind of if we if we really imagine that kind of way of looking, you know, that we actually see the brokenness of the glass when it's still whole. Does that feel depressing? Does that feel neutral? Uh, or you know, any, how, how does that? How do, how does it feel? I think you appreciate the wholeness more. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? And everything, you know, there's no right answer, obviously.
Everything's imperfect. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we take that towards ourselves, we could say that we're already dead. You know, that's that's got some impact. <laughs> so, so the idea of other uh, um, thing is, is, as much as it is a process, mm. so it's also. Uh, mm. Yeah. Mm. So seeing the process rather than just the, the, the that appearance. Mm. 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 Yeah. Beautiful. Maybe sunglasses never break, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's also how you're going to relate to a glass. I mean, if you, <clears throat> you view the glass as something that has been made and been nurtured and been cared for mm. as an object. It is sad when it's broken. Mm. But what are you using? You're using the glass to hold water, and you, mm. so it's a relationship, not mm. just with the glass, the object, but its purpose in, in life, I suppose. Mm. So widening the picture and seeing more of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And including, you know, it's possible to include the, the sadness when it's broken. Without that becoming, you know, what what some of us were describing in our experience, yeah, the drama, the, you know, I'm stupid, you know, I've done the bad thing, you know, just like, yeah, so a lot, um, yeah, spreading the sadness over a longer period of time. Mm, that can also be, yeah, and that alongside with a sense of appreciation for, for 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 it being there, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it can be a you know a very interesting reflection to to have, and, you know about things about like I said you know we can take it towards ourselves in that sense of you know we're already dead. <laughs> I wasn't meaning to say that, but as it came out, I'm going to repeat it. <laughs> it's the same as the glass. You know what does that mean about the sense of care that we might have, the sense of possibly lightness also that we may have towards things, towards life. So, we can learn to see the, the, the brokenness in the glass, yeah, without losing touch with the wholeness of the glass, yeah. We can learn to see both. Yeah, again, it's just a, a widening and opening, seeing, you know, the Michal said the process. Yeah. That this is not just this, but it's it was made and it will be unmade. Yeah, just like our body, just like everything else, made and unmade. And this can bring a lot of lightness. Yeah, it can bring a lot of lightness into our relationship to life. And that lightness, yeah, is also um, a way of Easing the contraction, easing the clinging, easing the craving. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. So if we look at this um, in relation to the to the four noble truths, I, I just found that quite fun when I did it. So I'm gonna 
play, play it out loud with you. So the first noble truth is, you know, there is dukkha in life. So if we refer it to the glass, is that the glass will break in some way, at some point. And the dukkha is in the clinging. Yeah, the dukkha is in the clinging. So that's the attachment to the wholeness, which is the other side of it is that drama when it breaks. But liberation from dukkha is possible. Yeah, freedom from clinging is possible. There is a path and we can learn to see in ways that free us. That's the third noble truth. And the fourth is the path itself, putting the teachings into practice. Which in that, this case is that the glass is already broken. And everything that kind of unfolds from that, that people here have said. So the, the fourth noble truth is, is usually, um, well, is spoken of as eight, has eight limbs. And I just want to touch on, on one of them uh, this evening, which is the limb of wise effort. Wise effort. And sometimes it's called um, the four great efforts because <laughs> as happens in the, in the in Dharma teachings, there's lists and sub-lists and sub-lists. So wise effort is made up of four efforts, but I'm going to simplify it in a minute so you don't need to remember them. Yeah, four efforts. To avoid and prevent as much as possible the arising of unwholesome states of mind. To avoid and prevent the arising of unwholesome states of mind. To abandon, to let go of unwholesome states of mind that have already arisen, that are already here. That's two. Number three is to cultivate and develop wholesome states of mind um, which have not arisen yet. Yeah? So to cultivate, develop, nourish wholesome states of mind to arise. And the fourth is to maintain and sustain wholesome states of mind that have already arisen. Okay. And the reason I wanted to touch on, on this particular limb of the, of the Eightfold Path is because it, um, it feels to me that in many ways it... Uh, it brings a lot of the teachings and the practices together, um, especially in the, in, the, in the way we've been speaking about them on the retreat so far. So I said there's four, and I was going to simplify them into two. So that's what I'm going to do. I can even do that. Um, and that's to divide them into wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind. Okay. Or another way of saying that, states of mind that support liberation, that support freedom, that support non-clinging, that support um, awakening, and states of mind that create dukkha. Okay, so that's what that's what is meant by the wholesome and unwholesome. Yeah, that which leads to freedom, that which leads to dukkha. And that was very much, Nathan was touching on it last night with the sutta of the two sorts of thinking. Yeah, that was the, the division. 
Right, the thinking that was uh, thoughts that uh, are um, unwholesome and thoughts that are wholesome, thoughts that lead to dukkha and thoughts that lead to freedom. Okay, so that kind of distinction. And we've seen this, I, I kind of just want to use this lens of the wholesome and unwholesome and, and kind of touch on some of, the, some of the teachings that we've been sharing so far. Yeah, so we've seen that in, in different teachings that have, uh, that have come through. Yeah, so when, we, when Nathan spoke about the hindrances, yeah, so we can see the hindrances as unwholesome, and yet uh, there's ways of attending to the hindrances that are wholesome. And there's a cultivation of the antidotes, which, which is wholesome. Yeah. So for example, you know, there was a desire, petty desire, and then there's gratitude yeah, as an ant- antidote to that. Yeah. So the wholesome and the unwholesome. Um, or when we were talking about using Vedana as um, a practice that brings freedom, then the movement from the identification with experience, yeah, the kind of getting, you know, being in the experience to the Vedana giving us some perspective and some spaciousness, yeah, as the wholesome. Yeah, so these are, these are the kind of, it's kind of a thread that we can follow. And remembering that, and I think again, Nathan mentioned it last night, this distinction when we hear this, cultivating the wholesome, abandoning the unwholesome, it can feel like, ah, this is something I need to do. And it takes willpower. Willpower is the way. Yeah. So really kind of remembering there's a big question mark next to that assumption that we have, that willpower is going to get me there. Yeah. We're actually looking for uh, something deeper. Yeah, something deeper than willpower to support us. A process of, I, I usually feel it like a process of alignment with, with the depth, with what we really know to be of benefit. Yeah, a process of alignment, really aligning ourselves or being loyal to. And with, with this, that Understanding of the practice as a cultivation is really, really helpful. Yeah, really, really helpful because it's a cultivation. It's not a willpower to do this and not do that. But rather, it's how do I nourish this and stop nourishing that? Yeah, it's a process. And a really great, really useful image for that is cultivation of land. Again, that the actual word, um, you know, a veggie garden, or a garden that we, that we cultivate. And we plant the plants that we want to grow there, right, that are beneficial. And then we look after them. And we might weed out the plants that we uh, don't want to grow there, that are not beneficial, or create the kind of conditions where they're less likely to grow. And then with time, the stronger the wholesome plants are, the less space there'll be 
for the unwholesome. Yes, this kind of a natural process, and we can really see it in this image of a garden. The more we nourish the wholesome, the less space there will be in, with the unwholesome. We can see it, you know, in our own habits of mind. So we nourish what is wholesome and we stop feeding, we stop nourishing, or we tone down as much as we can the nourishment of the unwholesome. And this way of looking at our experience, the wholesome and uh, the unwholesome, can really help to simplify our experience. So when we're caught up in something, yeah, that question of, is this wholesome or unwholesome? Or another way of saying it, does this lead to dukkha? Or does this lead to freedom from dukkha? Yeah can really simplify because usually we know the answer to that. Usually we know the answer to that. That's actually quite clear. And if it's not clear, then it's an opportunity to learn. You have to see, okay, where is this leading? Yeah, where, where does this lead? So that I know. So if we look at this wholesome and unwholesome from the lens of dependent origination again, from the lens of everything arises dependent on other things, we look at it through that lens. If everything arises dependent on other conditions, if the conditions change, so will the thing change. So if a mind state is dependently arising, dependent on conditions, it is changeable. Yeah, it is changeable. Conditions can change, the mind state will change. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is fixed. So the teachings invite us, encourage us to play skillfully with ways of looking and relating to experience, to explore, to experiment, to cultivate the wholesome and abandon the unwholesome through the way we look and attend to our experience. So again, it's always about the relationship, how we attend to our experience. So we very easily forget the possibility of possibility. <laughs> yeah. We very easily forget that things can change, that things will change, that we have an impact, that we can affect things. We forget that. And a great part of our practice is remembering. Yeah. One of the roots of sati, the Pali word for mindfulness, is remembering. Yeah. To remember that there is possibility. And the way to remind ourselves, the way to remember, is to do these kind of practices that we've been doing here. To seeing what happens when I look at something in a new way. Yeah? What happens if I change the way of looking? I'm caught up in this experience right now. There's a way of looking that's affecting that. What happens if I change it? Yeah? What happens if I change it?
And then seeing the effect, yeah, seeing the effect and reflecting on it. What changed, what, in what way, and what can I learn from this? So for example, today, if you played with the Anicca <coughs> practice, yeah, what effect did it have? Or if yesterday you played with the joy practice, what effect did it have? Yeah. How did it change the way we related to our experience? How did it affect experience, if it did? So the more we do that, the more accessible this remembering is, yeah? that everything is changeable, the possibility of possibilities. Yeah? We're not as stuck as we think we are, as we take ourselves to be. Everything changes, including the state of mind and heart. And everything is changeable, including the state of heart and mind. So the mind is pliable. Yeah, the mind is flexible. This is also something that we forget. Just like we disconnect from the nature of our body, yeah? Of our not me, not mine body, <laughs> yeah? We also forget that the mind is not fixed. It's actually pliable, flexible, changeable. And through practice, one thing that happens is that it becomes more pliable, more flexible, more plasticine. And so we can become more skilled. Yeah? Both the, the mind itself is more pliable, means it will move more freely between mind states. But we can also become more skilled at affecting change intentionally. And this can bring relief in the moment to ourselves and others. And it also brings long-term change over time. So neuroscientists use this phrase that we rewire the brain, yeah, rewire the mind. That's what meditation does. And particularly, you know, these intentional ways of looking practices, when we look intentionally in a certain way and we're interested to see the effect of that. So when the mind state change, when the mind state changes, the world changes. Yeah, we see the world, we experience the world through our mind state. Yeah, when the mind state changes, the world changes. Does that sound quite lofty and beyond the range of your experience? Okay, ever walked out of your front door after a good night's sleep, looked out, saw the rain and smiled. Ever happened to you? Good night's sleep, well fed, well being in mind and body, pissing with rain, and you smile. Happened to you? Maybe, yeah. And then the next day, bad night's sleep, argument with you know someone dear to you, really bad mind state, and you open the door and it's pissing with rain. Have happened to you? 
Yeah. So it's not lofty. It actually happens to us all the time. Yeah, all the time. All the time. Yeah, and when the mind state changes, the world changes. Yeah, the mind state changes, the world changes. And that quote from the Dhammapada that Nathan used yesterday, exactly that. You know, mind is the forerunner of all things. Our life is the creation of our mind. Is that Tanisaro Bhikkhu translation? Okay, slightly unusual. Tanisaro Bhikkhu takes quite a lot of poetic license. <laughs> I was just wondering. But the mind, mind is the foreigner of all, of all things is, is quite a common translation. Yeah. Mind, mind affects the world that we perceive. So can we remember possibilities? Yeah, the possibility to bring attention to the beautiful when things feel dull yeah, or painful or difficult. To bring attention to the beautiful or to bring compassion to the painful, yeah. or to remember what brings us joy. You know, we have these possibilities. We have these possibilities. Can we remember them? Because we're not faking it. You know, sometimes there can be these voices, oh, we're faking it, we're escaping it. We're not faking it. Experience is fabricated anyway. Yeah? It's always fabricated. We're always viewing it through a lens. So why not play around with those lenses? Why not play around with fabrication? Not take the default settings as um, the end of the story, yeah, the final destination. Yeah, we can reprogram, rewire, play. It's just being revealed in a certain way in this moment, because we're looking through a particular lens. So let's co-create our lives, yeah, co-create. And really important when we say these things, it's not that it's all in the mind. Yeah, mind is the forerunner of all things. does not mean um, that it's just our own creation, yeah, Significant condition that comes together with other conditions. Yeah. But it has a huge effect, and this is what we can uh, play with. This is what we can attend to, our own mind state. So let's fabricate, let's co create consciously and creatively. Yeah. Consciously and creatively, as much as we can, remembering possibilities. For the benefit of all beings, yeah, including ourselves. And let's clear and plant the garden of our hearts. Yeah. And minds and bodies for the liberation of love and wisdom. So let's just have a quiet moment to bring this to a close. So may we remember possibility, 
for our own benefit and the benefit of all beings with whom we share this life. So thank you for your listening and your participation. And we have uh, 20 minutes for some walking until the uh, final sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.